the reading question was, what is the Born approximation? Student answer, when the incoming wave has a weak potential compared to the incident energy, the incoming wave is not substantially altered by the potential. Um, that means you can, if you have a plane wave coming in, you can pretend that it stays a plane wave in the region where the potential is. Uh, so how weak is, student questions, how weak is weak for the Born approximation? So weak means that the potential energy is small compared to the incoming kinetic energy. That means if the, say it's electron coming in, <coughs> if the velocity of the electron gets smaller and smaller, that kinetic energy is getting smaller and smaller. So eventually, that kinetic energy will be zero, and then the Born approximation won't work. So it's a comparison of the potential energy where in the region where the potential is compared to the incoming kinetic energy. Another way to think about it is that uh, if the electron's coming in really fast, it doesn't spend much time near the potential, so not much is going to happen to it if it's a weak potential. But if it's like a Coulomb potential, or scattering off a proton, if we keep lowering the energy, eventually we'll get the, the electron will be trapped in a bound state. And that will be a big change in the wave function because it will be a localized, there's a localized wave function instead of a plane wave solution. So we can't get, we have to be at energies so that we're not close to those bound state solutions. That's another way to say it. There's a question at the back. I just, I have a question on the first sentence that you read. I mean, the first part of that sentence is not correct, right? Uh, the incoming plane wave. Scattering off a weak potential. I don't understand what he's talking about when he talks about pole singularities. Most of the math that's going on in this section I can't follow. So it's not a math methods course, even though sometimes it seems like we do a lot of math. Uh, so I don't expect, if you didn't have complex analysis, then that part doesn't make any sense to you. But for the people who took complex analysis, bring back fond memories. We did do it in 104, but I don't know how much people absorbed. It's just uh, so that when you see it again in graduate school, you're not going to be shocked. It's a reminder that of the fun things you'll get to do in graduate school. Uh, I'm still a little shaky on what the cross-section means physically. So the cross-section is telling us a few things. It's telling us how likely it is for the particle to scatter. So if the cross-section was zero, it would mean the particle would just go through and not scatter at all. So in terms of the total cross-section, we measured the probability of scattering in terms of an effective area. Small effective area means it's very unlikely to scatter. Big effective area means that it's very likely to scatter. And when we look at the differential cross-section, it tells us the probability relative probability that it'll go off at different scattering angles. Uh, I'm confused on whether or not the Born approximation is used in one dimension for very simple systems or is always applied to three-dimensional spherical waves. So you can apply it in any number of dimensions as long as that incoming energy is bigger than the potential energy. Can you explain what is meant by a partial wave? So we, we didn't read the section on partial waves because we 
We've only got four lectures left. Uh, but basically, it's you divide up your outcoming wave into spherical harmonics. So you expand it on the basis of spherical harmonics, and then you have a scattering solution for each angular momentum state. Can you consider the Born approximation an adiabatic approximation also like Born-Oppenheimer or not? So, not really. Uh, <laughs> Born-Oppenheimer is uh, dealing with when you have different energy scales. You have high energy scales and low energy scales, and you average over the high energy scales because those are the things that are rapidly oscillating and get some effective description of, uh, for the low frequency, slow things. So here, we're just, the Born approximation is, we're just uh, <coughs> treating the potential as a tiny perturbation, just like we did in time-dependent perturbation theory. So we're, and we're only keeping it, recall in perturbation theory, you can go out to many orders in the perturbation potential. So we're just keeping the first order term. Griffith says that the Green's function for a linear differential equation represents a response to a delta function source. Does this have any physical interpretation in this problem? So, uh, the physical interpretation is if we have this particle coming in, if I could, uh, the potential is like a little kick, and I can decompose that kick into a bunch of little <coughs> delta function kicks. <coughs> so if I know how it responds to a delta function, then I can figure out how it responds to an arbitrary kick by superimposing the delta functions correctly. So is it like you're expanding it to the basis of delta functions or something? The, the, thing, the potential, the interaction with the potential, you're expanding into a bunch of delta functions. Another way to think about it is that uh, Green's function tells you the particle is definitely here, and what's the probability for it to get somewhere else. So the delta function is like the source or particles emitted from that point. So you can think of it interactions as there's a funny language where you talk about the electron being annihilated at that point, and then you create a new electron that goes off with the new propagator from that point. Uh, is the integral form of the Schrodinger equation useful when the Born approximation is not applicable? Um, it could be useful if you have some extra information uh, about the wave function, some other constraint that you can impose, and then you can solve it iteratively. The book defines momentum transfer as h bar k minus k prime. How is this a transfer of momentum when really it's just the difference of two wave vectors in the scattering amplitude? but it's some special wave vectors. Uh, so k is telling us about the plane wave coming in, and then k prime is telling us about the emerging spherical wave. So if we act with a gradient on the incoming wave, we'll get the momentum is h bar k, and act with a gradient on that outgoing spherical wave, we'll get h bar k prime as the momentum. So it's really the initial momentum minus the final <coughs> momentum. Griffiths claims that K and K prime both have the same magnitude in the context of the Born approximation. Is this relation and equality only in the sense that we're equating sine, psi naught? Uh, it's more general than that. 
what it's saying is that we're looking at elastic scattering. So that means the thing that we're bouncing off of, we don't have enough energy to excite it into some excited state. So that means its final energy is the same as its initial energy. So we're not creating new particles, we're not moving up in energy levels. We're leaving the target exactly the way it was, and we're not creating new particles. So there's, the energy is conserved. Once you impose that the energy is conserved, the momentum is conserved, then all that can happen is it changes the direction that it's going. Any other questions? Uh, so last time we just went over a bit of at the end about different uh, orders of magnitudes of cross-sections. In nuclear physics you're probing areas that are around 10 to the minus 28 meters squared, the approximate size of a nucleus. At the LHC they're looking for effective areas that are 10 to the minus 40 meters squared. As we're going to see, this isn't really an area of anything, but it tells you about the range of the interactions. And uh, detection of dark matter, they're trying to get down to 10 to the minus 50 meters squared. So they can get down to smaller cross-sections because there's dark matter everywhere. So you just have to sit and wait for it to hit you. At the LHC, it's a hard problem to get enough particles uh, colliding at such a small effective area. So you need a lot of particles, which is hard to do. They're colliding particles, so they have to make two beams intersect. Okay, so we're ready to do quantum scattering. So the picture is we have a plane wave coming in, there's some target, and then once the wave hits the target, it acts like a point source, so it will send out some spherical waves. So if we write a, uh, so if this is the z-axis, we'll assume that everything's independent of phi, so we have it as a mutual symmetry. And we'll assume it's elastic. So the particle has the same energy coming out as it did when it came in. So a general wave function that would uh, describe this, here's an incoming plane wave. And a spherical wave would <coughs> go equally out in all directions. So it would just depend on the distance. And to conserve probability, we'll have to go like 1 over r. And it can depend on the angle that we scatter with. And this is a reasonable solution for large r. If we got close to the target, the wave function could be much more complicated. But as we get uh, far away from it, because it <coughs> it with these conditions, it can only be a function of theta. And when we square the wave function, 
the probability is getting spread out over a sphere of radius r. So the wave function itself has to fall like 1 over r, so the square goes like 1 over r squared. Just like when you distribute power from some light source over a sphere of radius r. So I have a little, uh, on the web page there's a Java calculator. So you can see what, uh, at least in two dimensions, <coughs> what scattering looks like. So this thing over here is our wave function. And this pink thing is the potential. And you can play with it and change the energy. Oops. Over here is the wave function. This thing, on my screen, it's pink, but uh, I guess red doesn't work on our projector. This hill in the middle is uh, the potential. So you can vary the height and the energy of the incoming wave function. I guess you can go between slits and cylinders. Uh-oh. Um, hello? Okay. You'll have to go to the web page and run it yourself because my computer died. Great. So much for that. It was really cool. <laughs> You get, it solves the wave function in that potential, so you see all kinds of weird ripples, and then it, as it goes off, it gets simplified into this form. <coughs> okay. So K tells us a, a, about the momentum of our incoming particle. So as usual, we can write that in terms of the square root of the energy since the energy is h bar squared k squared over 2m. So the momentum in the z direction is h bar k. Now, we, when we did the cl <coughs> classical cross-section, we related the flux of particles coming in through some initial area d sigma. So if I could draw in three dimensions, we can take that little area and extend it to a volume. And the length of the side we can take to be the velocity times some infinitesimal time. Then we know the probability inside that volume is the incident wave function squared times the volume. <laughs> So if we're sitting at far away from the target, we just pick up this first term. So the modulus of the wave function there is just a squared. The volume is v dt d sigma. If we look at the probability from the outgoing wave, we go off the axis. Then <coughs> we'll get a contribution from this term. We're just taking the scattered part, not the the plane wave that we started with. So then we'll get a factor of f 
in the probability. And then 1 over r squared. And uh, the element of a little patch is r squared d omega, an analogy with, with the classical calculation. d omega was the infinitesimal area on a unit sphere. So then just like the, cal the classical calculation, we can say that d sigma and d omega are related. But now they're related by the modulus of f squared. So just dividing these two. So the differential cross-section, so-called, is just this f of theta modulus squared. So f of theta is telling us about a, giving us information about a probability amplitude. And then squaring it gives it gives us a probability. But it's the relative probability <coughs> uh, to find the particle coming off at some angle theta. So we want to get to the Born approximation, but first we have to figure out what an integral Schrodinger equation is. So our Schrodinger equation looks like this. There's a kinetic term, a potential term, and for energy eigenstates, that's equal to the energy <coughs> times the wave function. And uh, we're going to try and write that so that it looks like a Helmholtz equation. writing the energy in terms of k, just like we wrote for our wave function. And then q has to be twice the mass times the potential over h bar squared psi. So if q didn't depend on psi, this would look like a Helmholtz equation. And the way you solve that equation is, so it's almost the Helmholtz. The way you solve that is with Green's functions. So first you solve a simpler problem. Find a function of the equation where you replace the right-hand side by a delta function. In our case, it's a three-dimensional delta function. So once you had that function, then you could write an integral over the Green's function times the source and that's actually a solution of the equation. So if we look at 
rad squared plus k squared acting on psi. This is a function of r. This gradient is a derivative with respect to r, not with respect to r naught. So it's only acting on g. And since g solves this equation, you get a delta function of r minus r naught. do the integral. It's just q of r. So if we had this Green's function, we could solve the equation for any q. So this Green's function is a response to a delta function source. also known as a propagator. And uh, for our three-dimensional non-relativistic uh, problems, the Green's function is actually e to the i k r over 4 pi r up to a minus sign. So instead of deriving that, we're just going to check that it works. So that's actually problem 1118. 11.8, sorry. So we just have to <coughs> check the grad squared plus k squared acting on g gives us a delta function. So we can write that out as uh, there's a term where the grad squared just acts on the 1 over r. There's a term where the grad squared only acts on e to the i k r. And there's a term where the gradient acts on 1 over r, and it's dotted into a gradient acting on e to the i k r, the cross term. Every term has a minus e to the i k r and a 1 over 4 pi. Uh, grad squared acting on 1 over r is a delta function. And <coughs> uh, this one? Oh, this one? 
No, grad squared of 1 over r is minus 4 pi times the delta function. It's minus? That number? I think it's minus. I'd have to dig out a math book to double check. So this grad squared, since this is only a function of r, we just need to, the theta and phi terms we don't have to worry about. And as we saw when we worked out the Hamiltonian for hydrogen in spherical coordinates, it has this beautiful, simple expression. Minus signs cancel, the four pi's cancel. And we get a term with a delta function. So here this derivative brings down an IK. This is minus 1 over r squared. This is ik to the ikr. And since this is a delta function of r, we can set r in the exponential to 0, since that's the only place where it's non-zero. Differentiating this, we'll get uh, 2r from differentiating the r squared and differentiating the exponential will give us another factor of ik. give us a plus k squared. And then we'll have a minus ik from there. And a plus ik from there. So those last terms cancel. This looks like minus k squared times the Green's function that we started with. So it is a solution.
So we've got a solution. There are a few little problems. We could always add uh, something to our solution. We could add, if we add some function g0, as long as it satisfies the homogeneous equation, then uh, it doesn't change anything because it just get add zero. But that's actually a solution. Of, that's the free solution of the wave equation. I mean, the solution of the Schrodinger equation with no potential. So we could always add those plane wave-like solutions. So you have to say something about what the boundary conditions are in infinity or initial conditions or something for your problem. So for our scattering problems, we can just take that, fix that ambiguity by saying that we have some incoming plane wave or whatever incoming wave we choose to have. We'll just keep that explicitly there. Then we have uh, our Green's function. But now it's a function of R minus R naught. And Q was twice the mass times the potential for h bar squared times psi, the wave function. is psi naught plus an integral over psi. So once you've solved this equation, you can plug psi back in and it'll work. So, <clears throat> of course, what we're going to do is only look at cases where this potential is weak. And that means we can do an iterative solution. So we'll say that our zeroth approximation is that psi equals psi naught. And then we can plug that in here. So then the next order solution is that it's, let me just write it schematically. There's a G B psi naught. But then the at the next order, I can plug this as well inside the integral. 
So there'll be a double integral and then I can keep going. These are all approximate. I can have a triple integral So in terms of pictures, this is just the particle goes through and nothing happens. This one is it hits the drop it hits the potential and bounces off. So there's a V. Can also hit the potential once, hit the potential again, and then go off. Or it could hit the potential three times and go off. So these are starting to look like those Feynman diagrams we drew when I gave you a 10-minute course on quantum field theory. And in fact, that's what, what you do in quantum field theory. All those diagrams that you draw representing electrons and particles propagating, those correspond exactly to mathematical expressions where there's a propagator, like this Green's function. It's just a relativistic propagator. You don't take the non-relativistic approximation. And then these potentials are really, at least in quantum electrodynamics, the potential means that it's a Coulomb potential, so you exchange the photon with some proton, say. And if you make the approximation that the proton is very, very heavy compared to the electron, then it's just like an external source of photons. And so you can look at series where you exchange many photons with the potential or the proton. And then if you want to get really fancy, you can take into account that the proton isn't infinitely heavy. It propagates too. <coughs> So there's the separate propagator for the proton, and this is a propagator for the photon. And eventually, if you track down all the details, you just put in a propagator for everything. Every particle that you have in your theory has some propagator, and you can connect them up with their interactions. And uh, solving quantum field theory means trying to sum up all these amplitudes where you put in all possible combinations of propagators and interactions together. Yeah? How do you know you've got all possible combinations? Well, there's actually a path integral, which is like a partition function that you can write down mathematically that generates all those diagrams, because every diagram corresponds to some mathematical expression for these propagators. So these partition functions are path integrals tell you exactly what all those terms are. It's just usually easier to write the diagrams than to write out the partition functions. Has any problem ever been exactly solved in quantum field theory, or are they all just successful approximations? Uh, in two spatial dimensions, you can exactly solve some quantum field theories. And uh, there's, there's some, if you put in enough supersymmetry, you can solve it in four dimensions, too. But that's a little beyond us right now. But that is the that is the answer to the last quantum question, which was about can we see calculations with uh, Feynman diagrams and Green's functions. So what we're doing 
when we do the Born approximation is we're taking this big series of complicated quantum field theory expressions. We're neglecting the, that the, the proton or the nucleus or whatever we're scattering off moves, so we're saying it's infinitely heavy because we're at low energies, non-relativistic. We're saying it's weak, so we only have to keep this term with one interaction with the potential. So we're just going to keep this term, which is an approximation to this full series. So we are doing approximate quantum field theory, non-relativistic, low-energy quantum field theory. Any questions? I think that's next we're going to we're going to show that given the solution of hydrogen we can plug it into our integral Schrodinger equation and it works since we know what the solution is exactly so we don't have time to finish that so I'll see you next week